This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 836, A Conversation with Dennis Hopeless. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is A Conversation with Dennis Hopeless, episode 836. This is actually the second time that Dennis has been on the show. If you want to go back, you can check in the archive and download episode 360, back from April 2016, when I first had a chance to talk with Dennis about his work at the time on All New X-Men and Spider-Woman. We still talk about Spider-Woman as well here, but we also kind of fill in the blanks in the last four year, four and a half years and what Dennis has been working on. There's been a lot of changes in his life, both professional and uh, personal, and we get into some of those on this uh, episode. It was uh, great to uh, sit down and chat with Dennis again. Uh, a lot of great insights. Uh, we talk about his work on the Gamerverse uh, Spider-Man comics, uh, the comics that were tied into the Marvel Spider-Man 2018 game. Um, and that's actually really interesting to kind of talk to him about that, what it's like to kind of work on a very established character, but outside of the kind of the main continuity and what that was like. And also working with the Marvel's Games uh, division, which is obviously a little bit different than working with traditional Marvel editorial. Um, so I'm really excited for everyone to listen to this episode. It was just great having a chance to uh, sit down and chat with Dennis again. Uh, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, and uh, let's get right into the conversation with Dennis Hopeless. Enjoy. Dennis, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. It's crazy. It's been four and a half years since we've last spoken. Um, it, it did not seem that long to me. And I'm going to tell you a quick story, which is an overshare, but I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's relevant to you. Um, so this quick story is that the last time we had a conversation, um, I, I had uh, two interviews booked for this specific day that we were doing it. And so we had a great interview, but we had, you had to get cut off because I think you had to go something to do with your kids at the time. So and you were like, "Well, how about you hit me back in like an hour or two? I'm like, "Sure, that sounds great." So you went off and did we whatever you had to do. You come back, and then we have this conversation. But just as we're finishing the conversation, I start to get extremely ill, and I say to you that oh, I'm about to interview Christos Gage, and you're like, "Well, good luck with that." And I'm like, "Thanks." Because I was starting to feel so deathly ill, and it came out of nowhere, and suddenly I was like having like chills and feeling extreme nausea, and I've never felt that ever since and before this particular moment. So I go on to do the interview with Christos, and it's going great, and he says he's got 30 minutes for me. I'm like, that's fantastic. I'm feeling like death, but don't want him to know that. So I get about 25 minutes into the interview, and then I have to mute myself, because now I have to throw up. But I'm, it's out of nowhere, and I, I didn't know it was coming. I thought I was going to be fine. So I start vomiting on myself, which is disgusting, uh, as, a, right. as a grown human being. Um, but also not wanting to you know, ruin this great interview with Christos, because he's giving me a fantastic answer to a question, which I can almost not hear now, because I am having this, this moment. And then I have to, to you know, very politely cut him off and say, I'm very ill, I'm so sorry, can we pick this up? And he was a class-act gentleman all the way. I've mentioned this story before on the podcast. I don't know why I'm telling you this now. I probably shouldn't have. But it, it just when I was looking at when we had last uh, spoken, I was like, oh, my God, that was the day. That is the worst. I can't <clears throat> imagine having to... I mean, I, it's good that you were able to mute yourself because it would have been really upsetting for Chris to have to hear you 
Oh my god. I, uh, that I, was a the, Yeah, the, I, I think I did tell him later on when we did the second part because I felt so bad about it. Because um, I felt like I just kind of, you know, cut him off almost mid-question, but I was just like, oh, this is so terrible. I couldn't obviously use his answer because I could mute him from hearing me, but I was not un- unable to really mute myself on the audio file, so I had to kind of cut that part out completely. It has remained one of my favorite moments of doing the show because it was so embarrassing and terrible, but very funny. I have the worst luck with uh, microphones when I'm doing these things. Um, I, Colin Bond and uh, Kyle Strom and I did a YouTube show for a while called Missouri Swagger, and we did not record the video separately, and I was never the one recording it, so I always sounded terrible on those. And then and I did Ryan Stegman's podcast once the day that they were refinishing my floors, so there were big floor sanders going off, but I couldn't get far enough away from the house because my <laughs> internet only went so far. So I, so I was standing in the garage holding my laptop <clears throat> in the middle of the winter, freezing, trying to answer questions while you could hear this bizarre, loud music and Sanders going off. Um, so, yeah, I can completely relate to how difficult it would be <laughs> to keep your focus with all of that. Yeah, a little bit. So anyways, after I have now embarrassed myself with the puke story, which is such a great way to start an interview, um, it, it's been it, it was interesting. I was looking at all the stuff you've done in the last four years, and I was like, oh my god, I forgot how fast the Marvel Universe shifts and changes. Because, you know, like, since huge events that you were writing books that were tying into, and now it seems so long ago, but it was only four years ago. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was a crazy four years for me personally and professionally. So yeah, it seems, uh, in a way, it seems like my kids were just born, but in another way, it seems like a lifetime ago. So how old are your kids now? They just turned six. Oh, wow. That seems so, yeah, crazy, they doesn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. My, uh, it's actually funny, right before we recorded, um, we, had, we had a, de- a technical delay, so uh, I was like, well, I don't know if the interview's going to happen, so I kind of hurried my seven-year-old to bed, because I was like, 8.30, you got to be in bed, I have this interview happening, and I brought him back down, I'm like, okay, you can play five minutes of a video game with me, we'll see what happens, and then you're like, oh, I'm ready to go, let's go, I'm like, you got to go, man, got to go back to sleep. He's like, oh, man, I thought I was going to have video games, but that's the uh, push and pull of a seven-year-old, I guess. I was I was so good with bedtime until COVID, and now like I'm lucky if they go to bed before ten and they're six, because it's just like I don't want them to get up earlier in the morning when we're not going anywhere mm-hmm. and I have to be you know a school teacher and dad all day tomorrow. Um, and at the same time, like the evening when I'm when I'm done getting my work done and fits and starts is the time when we get to hang out the most. So I don't want to put them to bed, but I really dread when the schools open back up and my children are used to sleeping like being awake from 9am to 10.30 <laughs> that's going to be a problem I think here you know, I, I, one thing that has, that COVID has taught me with regards to my own son is that kids are super resilient and so much better at this than we are. Because they just because if you think about it, yes. their whole life has been changed anyway. Uh, whereas we as adults have been able to, you know, get used to a rhythm and we get really set in our rhythms and we really get cranky when that's disrupted. But kids are just kind of like, yeah, okay, this is the next change you have for me. Yeah, I feel like like March was difficult for them, but then by April or May, that was their routine and they were used to it. Whereas, yeah, for us, we're still <laughs> obsessing over our routine that was a year ago at this point. Uh, yeah, that's true. And they're, they're, they're pretty resilient and malleable. That's absolutely true. 
So looking back, so it's again this kind of whirlwind of the last few years because I was looking at it and was like, wow. When we were last, you know, chatting, you know, you were. I think all new X Men was still happening. Spider Woman was still happening, and again, those feel like multiple eras ago already. Like, and how do you kind of for yourself kind of formulate how? your work, you know, progresses? Because, I mean, how often do you really kind of look back at what you've done? Or are you constantly in go-go-go forward mode? And then how often do you kind of take the time to kind of be like, oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, that was the thing I did. I mean, it's an interesting, like I said, it's an interesting time period for me because during that, I went through a divorce, like, relatively quickly after we spoke. Mm -hmm. Um, And that period of my personal life was really difficult for my professional life because, you know, writing is heady. You sit down and, and, and lose yourself in work. And so I was doing um, All New X-Men and Spider-Woman, and then I started writing the WWE book, and then my life imploded. And so I had these these books. Not only was I on three books, but I had two of them ending and two new books starting. So I jumped on to... Um, Jean Grey, and I was supposed to take over Doctor Strange at the same time I was writing um, WWE Monthly, and then my image book, Sea of Stars, was in development. And it was just more than I could do. So I ended up only doing one arc on, on Doctor Strange because I just didn't have the like emotional bandwidth to write that many books. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of started a... I mean, to be honest, I was just kind of a mess for a minute. So I think um, a lot of the editors that I had worked with kind of started moving in other directions, and I had to um, find my way in Marvel again. It took about a year to kind of come out of that and find my footing in my personal life, and then also like reconnect and make those new connections at Marvel. And so, yeah, there's a period where <clears throat> I was doing. Jean Grey, and then I did a weird digital first um, cloak and dagger run, and I honestly don't even remember writing those books. Like people <laughs> will um, bring them to me at cons when they were cons, or talk about it online. And I'm like, oh, that's right, because I was in such a strange headspace um, when, when that was going on. And then I did a bunch of really fun small stuff at Marvel after that, because I, like I said, I was making connections in new offices and kind of trying to reingratiate myself after my uh, head wasn't on fire anymore. So I did, um, like, I wrote the Spider-Man Game, game Reverse mm-hmm. series, of series, which to me, I was on a Spider-Man run for two years, but, like, that's not how they promoted it or sold it. Um, so that was super interesting to be doing something tied to um, that universe. And, uh, yeah, so I, I don't know, I just did a lot of little things along with that Spider-Man stuff, which pulled me out of the monthly tie into every big event um, sort of I had been in this, this Spider-Man or X-Men office for a really really long time and I, I was sort of playing around in other um, offices there and so that period it almost feels like um, I was on the road for a minute and <laughs> just bouncing all over and doing all sorts of little weird stuff but it's super fun I mean I got to write um, you know five issues of Cosmic Ghost Rider of all things um I don't know, I just did a bunch of weird little stuff that was sort of fun and, and reignited my my love of the Marvel Universe. 
So I have a few questions there. So the first is, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, because you were involved in the Spider-Man and X-Men offices and there was events happening that you kind of had to pivot and, you know, be part of them like Civil War II or whatever the case might be. Um, do you, like, as a writer who, you know, I feel like the, in this day and age, everyone kind of knows that events happen. Like, I don't think it's like 20, 30 years ago when they're like, whoa, whoa, events are happening that are throwing my storylines out of whack. I feel like people probably know going in that there, you know, there's more likelihood that that's going to happen. How did you always find navigating, you know, doing these tie-ins when they came up for the books that you were working on? I said the, the first time I remember doing, because well, like my first couple of series um, Cable and X-Force sort of tied into um, Uncanny Avengers a little bit, but not, I mean, mostly they were just kind of chasing my team around and my team was on the run, so it it didn't entangle with other stuff too much and then that was before they really started leaning into the X-Events so um, I feel like we were pretty much left alone and then Avengers Arena and Undercover took place in these little bubbles so the characters were like off the grid for the whole time I was writing them so the first time I really remember having to mess with it was Spider-Woman, and that was the most awful experience I had at Marvel, hands down, because we launched the book in the middle of Spider-Verse, and Jessica's role in Spider-Verse was like in six different places. So in four issues, I had to try to figure out how to explain an event that makes perfect sense and is beautiful if you read all of it, or if you're reading the main title, but if you're just reading a Spider-Woman book, it's really hard to, like, explain what's happening and then do all this convoluted stuff, and then, because um, Dan Slott's plan for everything was so huge, if something would shift, it would change, like, a whole half issue, so it was a nightmare, and, like, I still, to this day, it is a really fun thing to read within the context of the giant Spider-Verse omniverse, uh, omnibus, but never read my first trade of Spider-Woman. Like that, the one with the great hand cover, <clears throat> it makes no sense by itself, and on the actual story I pitched starts in issue five, which is the second trade. So uh, I think that was, in the same way that Avengers Arena was a learning experience about dealing with angry fans, that was a learning experience where, like, you, when you're writing in an event, you want the stuff that's happening to your character to make perfect sense and be really compelling within the confines of that character's life and the story you were telling before, so that someone who's not going to read the whole event still gets uh, like an interesting um, experience out of it. And so, with Spider Woman, we did several events there. We did uh, we did Civil War Two. We also did. I'm going to sound like an idiot. The one where the Ultimate Universe crashed into the regular Marvel Universe. Yep, Secret Wars. Secret Wars, yeah. And in both of those, I just wanted to, okay, what is Jessica's life? What is the story we're telling? And then how does this affect that? Tell that as quickly and concisely as possible and get out and get back to the story. Um, Because, yeah, if you... You know, if you try to make it like an integral part of the bigger story, that's great for the people that are reading the bigger story. But the people that just want to read, you know, their handful of books and love Jessica Drew, they don't necessarily want to see her being a tiny cog in a big machine. They, <laughs> they want to know what's going on with her. So that was my trick um, with Spider Woman. And then and the next time I remember it being really tricky uh, was writing Jean Grey. Mm. And 
I was, so I was writing all new X-Men, and I was, uh, it was me, Jeff Lemire, Colin Bunn, and uh, Tom Taylor was doing Wolverine. And we had had a big X comic where we figured out um, where we were headed long term with these books, and everybody had like a two or three year plan. And then at some point they decided to relaunch the titles of the line after the big um, X-Men versus Inhumans thing, and they wanted to shift the creative teams around. So instead of continuing on with the same characters and books we were doing, we were all going to get new books. And I really wanted to write Jean Grey because she was the one teen X-Men that I hadn't gotten to write in my, in my all-new X-Men run. So I said, I know it's a, you know, it's a solo X-Book. I know those don't do as well normally, but I have, can I have Jean Grey? So I pitched them the teenage Jean Grey um, knowing, like, basically getting premonitions that the Phoenix is coming back and it's going to destroy everything and nobody believes her because they saw their version of young Jean Grey lose her mind the first time this happened. And so it's this thing, it's just like this boogeyman that she knows happened to the other her. She doesn't want that to happen. She doesn't want to go Dark Phoenix. She doesn't want to kill people. But it's coming. She doesn't want to do about it. So I had this great, like, really compelling premise for that book where she's trying to prepare herself for something nobody else believes is going to happen. They don't see it on on any uh, the satellites. They don't, they, she seems like she's crazy. And we were angling toward like a huge big ending where she has to fight the Phoenix off and what's going to happen at the t- right around our final arc. I think I had two issues left to write or three issues left to write. They decided to, to, to do the return of the Phoenix and bring adult gene back mm. in a big event. And <laughs> that had been something that had been brought up because it was a long-term plan, but there weren't any specifics. So I was writing mine, like just, explaining the you know the, the bird coming back and then the Jean Grey stuff could happen because I knew I knew uh, that was going to happen separately but when they started like putting the bricks in on that it made no sense with what I was going to do with Jean Grey and so I had two options I could either write my ending in a way that it's not the Phoenix but makes you know but is more close to what I was doing or completely revamp my intentions to dovetail in with what they were going to do and make my book seem like a prequel book to a larger story. And that's what, it was a wild pain in the ass. I had to rewrite so many pages and there was a lot of stuff I had to read really quickly to get it done and to stay out in front of um, the artist. But, <laughs> so it was a huge headache and it had me, for the first time in years, really cursing Marvel events. <laughs> but it was a really fun writing exercise it was a really interesting collaborative exercise with, with editors and other editors and figuring out how to make it work. And at the end of the day, the readers of my Jean Grey book, I think it got more out of the event than people that just read the event because it seemed like we were heading there. Like sticking that landing was crucial for like, oh, they've been foreshadowing this in this book the whole time. So it was a, it was a fun way to make my book like preemptively or not preemptively in the, in the, middle of a race we decided to make my more important uh and and took it off in another direction and i'm really proud of that 
Oh, also, like I said, I don't remember writing half of that book because of what I was going through personally. Yeah. So the fact that we were able to do that, um, and I feel like around that time was when I was kind of coming out of the fog, and and we stuck that landing. So it's a, I don't know, it's a very strange thing about working for Marvel and writing um, in a shared universe is that yeah, sometimes things that are bigger than your book come up, and you have to figure out how to serve your readers and also the larger Marvel universe. Um, yeah, I mean, if you do the work and, and do the thinking and, and and take advantage of the fact that there are a lot of eyeballs on it, it can be pretty rewarding. I think. It's interesting, you bring up, you mentioned earlier about the fact that the kind of making inroads back at Marvel, kind of when, you know, kind of the, the personal kind of crisis had kind of subsided or at least was easier to deal with. I'm, it's curious because I feel like people don't often talk enough about how, I mean, we kind of just don't talk about Marvel as like this big homogenous entity, but obviously it's not. There are kind of multiple silos and different offices happening. And now that you've worked yeah. in a variety of different offices and for different editors, like what is your kind of main takeaway about how that system both works and doesn't? Because it's not just a homogenous product or a company. It is kind of minor, like mini companies within. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about that is that they try really hard to, to make it all like they, they put energy and they have retreats you know everybody knows what everybody else is planning to do but comics are written and created especially big two comics are written and drawn at such a clip that what you were planning on doing six months ago when you guys sat in a room and and you know did these big long-term sketchy plans isn't exactly what happens when it, when you're when you write a script or or, or when you're um, plotting tight plotting the individual issues and that one of the editor's big jobs there is to try to coordinate with other offices and make it all work but the deeper you get in the more things shift and change around you and you have to you have to be really mobile um and just because of you know people and personality types and uh, some people procrastinate some people are really good at staying on schedule some people are willing to stop and pull up track even if you're going to lose time and these are all different individuals, the editors and the creators. There are some offices where there's a really strict plan, and as long as you hit your deadlines, everything's going to be okay. And then there are other like coordinated chaos offices where everything's by the seat of your pants. And some really cool innovation can happen at the seat of your pants, um, even though it's a little more stressful. And, I, you know, but also there's stuff we plan out and it gets vetted, like that Vader Star Wars book that I did. Um, you know, you had to work with Lucasfilm, so that got vetted a hundred times. And it, one of the issues of that is the most controversial things I've ever done at Marvel because the internet absolutely hated it and freaked out um, because they had assumed I was saying something it wasn't. But uh, yeah, so that was that was a thing that was in a really tightly scheduled office that we've been working on forever that everybody had said yes to and then it comes out and it's like oh we didn't see that coming so I don't know it's yeah Marvel's not like Big Brother it's not one person that moves with one mind and makes all these decisions it's a conglomerate of creative people that are all trying to do their best work and um, you know, personal tastes and personalities play a huge role in that of the different editorial relationships you've had, which do you think was the most conducive to your own kind of creative, uh, you know, output in terms of, you know, just kind of the best fit? I'm not, again, I'm not saying anything about the ones that maybe there weren't. I'm just looking for the one that was kind of the, the best marriage that you've found. Uh, 
Bill Roseman and I worked really well together right out of the gate. He was my first Marvel editor. Um, we did well. He was my first ongoing editor. I worked with um, Alejandro Arbona and I did X Men season one. That Jordan White came in when Alejandro left, and then I did uh, Alejandro and I did um, another monstrous book that was my very first Marvel work, but my first like monthly series that's worked with this guy for a couple of years was Bill Roseman, who now is the VP of Marvel Games. And Bill was great. Like he's really enthusiastic, super supportive, but also like he lines the artist up, knows who's going to do the fill-ins, knows what time you're supposed to hit. So it was really nice to have that um, reining me in early on. And that was Avengers Arena, which would have been a nightmare, a nightmare to do without a lot of controls in place, just because it was so controversial and it was my first ongoing, and it was super terrifying. So we had a good working relationship. Um, I've always worked really well with Nick Lowe, uh, who was at the X office when I started there, and then he he and Devin Lewis edited Spider-Woman, so um, I love those guys. That worked really well. Um, the person, I think probably the person that frustrated me the most, but probably got the most out of me because our minds work the same, was Daniel Ketchum. Um, and Dan is a guy that will s- stop... <laughs> right before the train's about to go and pull up all the track and start over if he has a better idea or if he, you know, if, if something doesn't work. And, and so those books are schedules, always a nightmare, but I think he, I'm willing to do that. Like, I'm always willing to rethink and redo to make it work. And so uh, we maybe brought up each other's worst tendencies in in, the, in terms of getting stuff turned in on time and, and you know, making the, uh, the money, but creatively um, we worked really well together. You know, I haven't had I haven't had a bad experience that I can think of. I've gotten along really well. It's been different in every office for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, like Mark Basto and I did um, uh, the Spider-Man Game Reverse stuff, which sounds like it would be a terrible job because you're dealing with um, you know the Marvel games, which fortunately I know Bill, so that helps. But you're also trying to adapt parts of a video game while also doing something creative that makes sense. And he was really good at like at playing the go between between that and um, Marvel games. I think I, I don't know. It, it's chaotic over there, but I think they have um, a lot of really smart people who are really passionate about doing it. So as long as you figure out the editor's quirks and they figure out yours, it usually works pretty well. When 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 you've been working, I mean, obviously you have a lot of peers in the industry and just at Marvel in general, um, or not just Marvel in general, just in, in general. Um, when you have worked or butted up against with other writers, who have you found was kind of maybe the, the best team player or someone who you just felt was the most kind of always on board or always game to kind of adapt or make changes or kind of work as and not being intractable, but instead being the, the exact opposite, being much more adaptable and kind of being that team player? Most of the... So I've done some co-writing. Um, Colin Bunn and I are really close friends, and the co-writing we did there, we basically just broke it up based on our strengths. Like Colin's really quick at plotting stuff and like um, like breaking down uh, the pages and the panels. And so he would do that, and then I would go on top and do all of my noodling and dialogue and stuff and move stuff around. Um, and that was extremely efficient. Like we work really well as a get it done team um although i think colin thinks i'm a crazy person (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know if he enjoys it as much as i do um and the most 
fun collaboration I've ever had with Spider Women because Robbie Thompson, who I didn't know very well at the time, but is now a really good friend of mine, um, and Jason Latour, uh, who was writing Spider Gwen at the time, we got into a room and did it after a New York Comic Con. We spent two or three days in like a TV style writer's room where we figured out the story just like spitballing with, with the editors. And that was a blast. Like, I wish comics could more comics to be made like that, where you're just sitting in a room with other creative people and making jokes and tossing stuff around, and some of the jokes become, you know, are, are stuck in the book. And and some of the best things that happened in there were just crazy ideas somebody said because we'd been grinding on the same thing for a while. Um, and that was, yeah, that was really fun. And then we just got to go home and write the scripts after we'd agreed on it. Um, so yeah, I mean those guys were really collaborative, and then I haven't worked with Jason Aaron at Marvel much. Uh, we've discussed things, but he and I co-write our Image book, See a Stars Together, and um, Jason's like one of my favorite writers. And the way we would collaborate with that is just we split the characters up. So I write the dad, and he writes the kid. So it would be fun to do something um, in a shared universe with Jason. It's a little more fun. Like after a couple years of that, I think it'd be a lot of fun mm-hmm. to, to work with Jason. Uh, yeah, at Marvel or somewhere else. As someone who's you know worked on, I would say a, a very celebrated run on. Like I, your your Spider Woman is remains like just so so fantastic and this this wonderful I, I'm almost surprised it happened like it was just it, it seems like such a, a beautiful alchemy of different things happening and you know you're writing and um, you know fantastic art but I, one thing that does strike me about the spider kind of verse in general is it does feel like in in the last you know five ten years we have a lot of spider themed characters and spider-man's not really as unique maybe in his power set anymore when there's a lot of people running around with very similar powers obviously you know Jessica Drew's a little bit different there because she's not as similar in her power set as some of the others are do you think that there's maybe too many spider themed characters or do you think that there is enough room to support all of them or do you think it does take something away from Peter Parker himself I mean if you had asked me that before the Spider-Verse movie and before um you know, Spider-Verse has become such a big part of the, the Spider-Man mythos in the comics. I probably would have said y- y- yes, but, um, you know, Miles Morales and, and Spider-Gwen are two of the most interesting new characters that, that Marvel has um, found in the last 10 or 15 years. And seeing that stuff explode in other media, like, while yes, maybe it does detract from what Peter Parker is, there's like 50, 60 years of Peter Parker stories mm-hmm. um, that are fantastic and are right there. And so to take that notion, you know, the the with great power idea and the, you know, the good guy superhero that covers his face completely so anybody can be under the mask and like the that character at its core is just such a great idea. So to allow other people to see themselves in it, I think is really cool and interesting and um, also it's really opened up the larger um, like Marvel Universe zeitgeist to this notion of of alternate universes that we're seeing I mean it seems like that's what they're going to do in the next live action at least to some degree in the next live action um, Spider-Man thing because they're talking about you know casting people from the previous movies and 
I love that. Like, I love big, crazy sci-fi stuff, being a part of it. Um, having said that, it, it makes it a big, a much bigger pain in the ass to write Spider-Man, that there's 15 side characters that have the same power set who are telling similar stories at the same time, and then so in order to be unique. And so I think I, I am really lucky, because I got to do two years on Spider-Woman and two years on Game Reverse Spider-Man, and in both cases, like... Jessica Drew is Spider-Woman, but her power set is completely different other than crawling on walls, and the concept of that book was so different that it didn't feel like I was just doing another Spider-Book. And then my Spider-Man run was in the universe where he's the only one. You know, Miles is gets bitten in the pages of it, but he's not a hero yet. So I got left alone to just kind of do whatever I wanted um, within that. So yeah... I think it does make the job of writing Peter Parker specifically a little bit harder, mm-hmm. but it's also not new. I mean, you know, there, there's Ben Riley and multiple Spider Women for years and years. True, this is very true. Uh, so I do have to ask about, and I'm sure I've asked this before, and I, I regret that I don't remember the answer. Um, when doing Spider Woman, obviously by giving her a child was such a huge shift in the character, and not something that you know can really be undone. Was there pushback about it, or was everyone kind of on board and said, yeah, this is a cool new direction, this makes it different, this is something unique? Uh, well, initially, so the premise of the run was just Spider-Woman quits the Avengers because she's sick of all of the crazy and wants to have a normal life for the first time ever. And then the normal life smacks her in the face because she's not actually good at it. You know, she had no childhood, and she, she's been a a spy or a double agent or avenger her whole life um and other than when she was a pi so she tries to go back to being a pi um and that was the premise of the book but we got to the um uh secret wars and every marvel book was going to jump forward eight months and something major was going to change with the relaunch so we all got to go write other weird stuff in the middle um i wrote inferno and house of them comic with colin uh during that I had like a two month stretch or whatever Secret Wars going on and then the book relaunched after the fact after the universe reset and while I, I had you know we had big long term plans for what we wanted to do the book but something huge had to change and I'm feeding two you know four month olds whenever Nick Lowe's trying to get me to come up with what we want to change are we going to kill Ben Urich are we going to have her quit and move to a different town is she going to get back to being more super uh, you know more traditional superhero what are we going to do and none of that was interesting like I was really loving the idea of doing this long run where we really change the character and have her grow and, and, and find her feet as a normal human being, a street-level hero. And the only thing I could think from the beginning was, well, having a baby's the real life smacking you in the face about as hard as it possibly can. Like, that fits. Like, that would be huge. Plus, it's eight months. So if she's eight months pregnant, you know, that tracks. But when I told Nick that, he laughed like it was a joke and said, okay, what are we really going to do? And I pitched him at a couple of times, and every time he's just like, we can't do that. It ages the character. Um, and then you have to deal with the baby. Like, what the hell are you going to do with the baby afterward? Like, we can't do it. You need to come up with something else. But I didn't. I was, I was. I think I was behind because I was right. I only had about three hours a day to write because of my kids not being in preschool yet. And I just couldn't come up with anything. So when I went to the retreat, it was about to be the time for us to um, – to talk about all the spider stories and what we were going to do coming out of Secret Wars. And we went and had lunch. I had lunch with Nick Lowe, the editor, 
Brian Bendis, who was writing Ultimate Spider-Man, like the Miles book at the time, and uh, Dan Slott, and Dan Slott, who was writing, um, I feel like Superior was still going on, Superior Spider-Man, but maybe it might have been right around the time of the relaunch when Peter came back. Hmm. Um, And Nick, I had asked Nick, like, can I talk, you know, like, I, I want to do the, the mom thing. He's like, well, why don't you tell it to those guys at lunch? Like, if those guys think it's a good idea, then I'll consider it. And I I said, well, it's been eight months, and I think it'd be interesting if Jessica's pregnant. And Bendis' eyes, like, got so, like, really big. And he's like, eight months, it makes perfect sense. And then Dan Slott was like, oh, you have to do that. You have to pitch that. Like, if you pitch that, we're behind you. And Nick, Nick after the lunch, was like, okay, we're going to pitch it, but I'm telling you, that room's not going to like it. Like, they don't like aging the characters like that. They don't, in the past, anytime a female character has had a baby, it's been something we've had to deal with. I think it's going to go over well. So we go up there, and I've got, you know, I've got Dan Slott and Brian Bendis on my side, so I feel like, worst case scenario, two really great, really powerful writers are going to back me up while I'm told no. And I said it, and the entire room got quiet, and they're like, oh, that's great. Yeah, I don't know why we didn't think of that. And then we just moved on. Like, that was, that was the conversation. Uh, and I think a lot of what it comes down to is they had Spider-Gwen already. They were developing Silk in Dan's book um, to be a, a big breakout character. And at the time, Sony still owned the movie rights to all the Spider-Stuff straight out. So they didn't care about aging up Spider-Woman. Aging up Spider-Woman or making Spider-Woman a little bit tricky didn't affect the greater Marvel Universe or their ability to make movies in the same way because it was fine. Like It differentiated her, if nothing else, to make her a little older and a little more mature. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we just we went with it and we got the cover drawn and we were um, promoting it in San Diego and somebody pulled Axel Alonso, who was the uh, editor-in-chief aside at the time, and said you need to make sure that nothing in that book makes it seem like a hero is putting her child in danger on purpose. Like, <laughs> like you can't have her going out and fighting crime with a big pregnant belly because it's going to seem to readers like like you're promoting the idea of uh, you know, like irresponsible motherhood or whatever. Um, and we had a whole plot worked out of what the first arc was going to be, or the first issue at least was going to be, and a, a whole big plan. And it, she was being careful, but it wasn't careful enough. So the, the baby arc, where she, first baby arc, where she's in the hospital doing Die Hard and like avoiding scrolls while trying to save everybody, was my solution to the problem of pregnant Jessica Drew can't fight crime. She can't put herself in harm's way on purpose. <laughs> so we, yeah, we created like a, a different way to do that, and then, um, and then yeah. At that point, it's is it responsible for a, for parents to be police officers or soldiers? You know, you're putting yourself in harm's way while your child's at home. Is that responsible? And so that became a big theme of the book. So we just kind of like I would have loved the book anyway. I liked our ideas that we had, but having to, to move around those obstacles the whole time, uh, I think, cemented what it was about and what we were trying to say. And um, yeah. We just got really lucky. Like, they shouldn't have let me do it. I was told no, and I should have taken no for an answer. Um, and it just really, really worked out well. And the fact that 
Javier came on and made it so like pretty and interesting and weird and like a old school Marvel way, but allowed the art to tell the story in a way that I never had to get in the way and explain anything. And then um, when he left, following that is impossible. You know, we did. There's no way the book wasn't going to take a huge dip. And then we got Veronica Fish, and she brought a completely different kind of genius to exactly the right moment in the book when the love story started. And, yeah, it's just a lot of dumb luck. Like, we're all trying to make really, really good comics that resonate always, and you fail as much as you succeed. And so when something succeeds like that, Something that shouldn't last that long, that they should have said no to, that you know, like had no reason to go two and a half years. When it works, it's a lot of dumb luck. A lot of people that are that are more talented than me lifting me up, and a lot of dumb luck. So I have to ask. I mean, I, 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 a big breakout character of that book obviously was Roger, and I think everyone kind of loved Roger. What what was it about Roger that worked for you, and that even thought? That's how I should develop this character because it. I'm like, if you'd said that, you know, probably a year before you were writing the book, that oh, you're gonna, you know, have the porcupine become a main character in this book and people are gonna love him. Um, I feel like you know you would have you would not have expected that. Yeah, there's a guy that um, comes to the Kansas City Comic Convention, Planet Comic Con, uh, who was very proud to have every appearance of Porcupine. He has Porcupine shirts. He's a huge Porcupine super fan. And he said that when I started writing Spider-Woman, I made his job so much more difficult because <laughs> I like, there's 10 times more issues that have Porcupine in them now than there was when it started. Um, no, the way that happened is I had to um, come up with characters to be at arcades birthday party in a flashback issue of Avengers Arena. We were showing Arcade's birthday party and him getting like made fun of by all the other supervillains. And I just went and looked at old Silver Age comic book costumes that I thought were interesting. And the original Porcupine's costume is the most ridiculous thing that's ever been in a Marvel comic book. It looks <laughs> like a bale of hay with a head. And then like I went down the rabbit hole, the Wikipedia rabbit hole, and like his modern costume is super cool. So I'm like, oh, yeah, put that guy. So he's just like in the background of a scene in that, and then in Avengers Undercover, we did the um, the Bagalia Bar scene, and I put Porcupine in it again because I like the costume, and I, I think he has a line in that, and it's sort of like I just found a like an out of work actor that I put in things, and then I fell in love with it. So when <laughs> It came time to write the first um, post Spider-Verse arc of um, Spider-Woman. I just I wanted to use old like street level Spider-Man Daredevil villains that had cool costumes. So I did Porcupine again, and he was the one I'd written the most. So I had him be the one in the shootout, and then <laughs> I thought it was funny to uh, chain him to a radiator like Black Snake Moan because she wants to get answers answers out of him, and. The, that scene where Roger's uh, tied to the radiator and she's eating cereal out of a cup and he's making fun of her for eating cereal out of a cup like it's just I found chemistry like the way I wrote I wrote him like he was the dude from uh, Big Lebowski and something about that guy who talks that way speaking to the most impatient and frustrated superhero <laughs> it's just really fun to write together so I kept him around um, and then, yeah, when it, when we did the big jump, 
we did the, we did the road trip issue where they went around um, the country and they're sort of trying to train Roger to be a hero, and that ends with the worlds colliding. And then when we came back, it's like, well, eight months have passed. If they've been training Roger to be a superhero the whole time, Jess has been pregnant, he'd be a superhero by now. So I kept him. I kept him around for that, and that was the idea. But then he's such a good nanny. Like it was just funny to have him be the nanny. <laughs> uh, so it again. <laughs> there's no reason that should have worked. That is not some sort of genius plan that I came up with. It just I started doing it, and it and it worked, and it kept working. And once I realized they were in love with each other, I was like knee deep in it. Um, so the plot sort of just found me. When when you had that issue where it looked like he died, like I mean, obviously we got to wait till we see bodies, and we should know better as comic book readers. But it got me. I was like, oh my god, did he really just kill him? <laughs> well, the beauty of Roger is he's so expendable. Nobody else cares. Uh, my favorite thing about that run is because we gave them a happy ending and we made Roger such a big character is that Roger's the biggest pain in the ass for every future Spider-Woman writer like the fact that there's a child and an idiot boyfriend that have to be dealt with or at least I mean they can write him out pretty easily and people break up but the fact that Porcupine had to be addressed whenever Jessica was used after that is my favorite thing I've ever done to the Marvel Universe that one person had to be like what do I do with this guy fit into a normal story it didn't make any sense but you know he fit into ours is he I mean I, obviously I mean he would have to be kind of one of those kind of favorites that you know the diamond in the rough that you kind of found and kept using when going back to and becoming more and more important to you is there anyone else any other characters that were surprises to you that you didn't expect to kind of take on such a role similar to Roger maybe yeah but it was it's gonna sound offensive <laughs> Uh, Domino. I did not want to write Domino because when I was writing my X-Force run, I, I loved Rick Remender's X-Force run, and I wanted to do something cool and different, and they really wanted to throw some 90s X-Force in there, and Domino was the concession. And so, when I went to write the the scenes, like I didn't know what to do with her. So, it was the same sort of thing where like, okay, <laughs> she likes big muscle-bound guys with metal arms, like, what if she's attracted to, to Colossus? And in that relationship, like, that relationship um, is the heart of that book. Like, this guy, this really, really messed up guy who just went through some crazy stuff and just broke up with the love of his life, having a rebound with, you know, like, crazy, <laughs> uh, very different, very militant, shoot first, ask questions later woman. That was a blast. Like, those two were super fun to write together. Um, and I got an opportunity to write a short story with them um, during Gail Simone's Domino Run a few years later. And it was just as much fun now as, as, as it was when I was doing it. So every book has somebody that I didn't expect to, to enjoy writing. And they, they, they come out. But Roger's the dumbest one. Like, that, the, the one that shouldn't have worked. Um, just talking about the Gamerverse for a second, I mean, when you get that, that gig, I mean, how, I can't remember the release schedule, but I mean, was that coming out in and around when the game was actually released? Was it a little bit later? Did you have to kind of, I mean, it sounds silly, but did you have to kind of play the game as research? Like, how did that kind of come about? Yeah, I, I had played the game a little bit, um, the, well, the, my girlfriend at the time was a gamer, and so I had 
uh, bought some games uh, and realized quickly that I was not a gamer. Like, I, I never... <laughs> it takes so long to get good at the gameplay of modern games that I always feel like I should be doing something else. So I think they're beautiful, and I like watching other people play. And it's fun now because my kids have dug those games out now that they've gotten older, and, and watching them run into walls is funny. Uh, but, yeah, I'm just not a huge gamer. So I had the game. I believe I had the game when I got the job. Um, but I hadn't really messed around with it. And they sent me all of the cutscenes for the whole game, which was... I was like three hours worth of cutscenes, and I started trying to watch that. And without the context of the gameplay, it was it's a really good game with a really tight story, but like it just jumps a lot. Hmm. So I started um, messing around and playing the game, and then I got super hooked on it. So I've played it through twice now, and I played the um, the DLC as well. I'm not very good at it, but on the lowest difficulty level, uh, it has sucked a lot of li- um, hours out of my life. but yeah fortunately I think adapting a lot of video games would be really tough but fortunately that game has a really tight story that builds really well and the most challenging thing about the first arc because the first arc is basically an adaptation of the game it's just that you can't fit all of it in like where do you cut and how do you make it work and make sense Um, so that was the most challenging thing but once once I just got to write new stories in that version of Spider-Man Universe, um, it was super fun. So, uh, and it's an excuse to play video games for finger quotes research. <laughs> so I'm curious, like what the what those conversations were like because I mean, the, when the first one comes out, I, I think everyone kind of was like, okay, this is you know an adaptation of the game. But then they keep going, and you have more books. You know, what was the conversations like with Bill and with you know the kind of Marvel game side on what they wanted? in how they wanted to expand, you know, the, the base of from the movie. I sorry, from the game, I should say. They wanted the they wanted something that would be the story of the game for people who hadn't um, played the game to pull people into the world of it so that we could do the later run. So the, the, the idea was always this is going to be a series of stories that take place in the game that give people something to read while we make the sequel. Like, I knew that the Miles Morales game was coming when I was writing the first one, because they were developing it then. Oh, wow. So the whole thing was, we're going to use this as a lead-up to that, and then we'll have, you know, nice traits that we can put in, you know, Amazon bookstores and stuff and, and tie to the game so that people don't want to read it. But at the same time, some people just like Spider-Man books and they're never going to care about the game. So it needs to make sense by itself. So anything that I show from the game needs to be explained and anything I cut out needs to just be the camera didn't go there, not that it didn't happen, um, which is challenging. But the fact that I knew I was going to get at least one like self-contained my idea Spider-Man story on the other end of it made that first first uh, arc or whatever mm-hmm. um, easier to write. So yeah, fitting all the action in was the hardest thing because there was a lot of stuff that had to be said, and there's a lot of really cool set pieces and moments. But you know, they're 20 pages long. It's 80 hours of gameplay. <laughs> you know, you a splash page is a lot of real estate. Um, so we had to do it sparingly. But um, we got really lucky. I had great artists all the way through on everything we were doing. Um, and then the saddest thing, I'm probably not supposed to tell the story, but it's, the game's out, so it doesn't matter. 
the whole thing was leading up to a prequel story that was going to bridge the gap between the first game and the second game, and we were working on it for the launch of the PlayStation 5 and the launch of Miles Morales, and COVID, when COVID happened and Pencils Down happened, we had I had two issues of that written, and they didn't know when PlayStation was going to come out, because at the time, mm. you know, like, stuff wasn't shipping, so they... It pushed everything back so far that by the time everything the gears got grinding again, there was no there wasn't going to be time to get it all out by the time the game came out because it was going to be a deluxe edition. You could get a deluxe special edition of the game that came with the prequel comic. So I was going to have a prequel comic that shipped. It was like a hundred pages, I think, that shipped with uh, the game, oh. and I, mean, I got paid for what I did, but. That would have been really cool. And it just, you know, it was a global pandemic that threw a wrench in the works. Um, but yeah, but yeah it was supposed to, that was supposed to, like, dovetail into the Miles game, but it just didn't work out. Do you think, well, like, do, has it been talked about ever kind of putting it out there, or is it just going to be one of those things that is left unfinished? Yeah, we, we waited around for a long time. They, initially, they said, we're going to keep working on this because it's tied to the game. And then when they realize the game one might not come out, they're like, okay, we're going to pause, but we're, we're talking to games. We're going to figure it out. And eventually it was just like this, the timing of this isn't going to work out. Like it doesn't make sense to put out a prequel thing. Once the game's out, it would need to come out at the same time or before. Um, so it was just a timing issue. So yeah, I doubt, um, I mean, maybe, when I'm old enough to not care what anybody thinks, I could release the scripts and the and then a little bit of art that was drawn on my own. But I don't think Marvel's ever going to do Of the of Black Hat Strikes and Velocity, which one did you have more fun kind of putting together? Velocity was super fun because it was 100% just our idea. And we got to create um, a new character and it it was fun doing a like Spider-Man as Uncle Ben story where he was the that person that pushed someone in the you know in the direction of good. Uh, also, it's it's always fun to write Spider-Man in a fight that he shouldn't be able to win, but he always you know he never stops giving up, never stops trying. So that was really fun. Uh, but. Felicia's one of those characters that is exactly what I like to write. And Felicia flirting with Peter was <laughs> just a blast. Um, that came, that that arc is weird because it takes the DLC and expands. Like, we, we, we told a new flashback that shows what their relationship was before while also showing the main beats of the DLC. So it was tricky from a plot standpoint. But yeah, <laughs> writing those two together is really, really fun. And writing Jealous Image MJ, who's super mature and trying to be a good person but really annoyed, like all of that is right in my wheelhouse. So it, I had a lot of fun with it. And I guess one of the last things I want to ask you about is, uh, you know, you, you did get to write a, a series with the Cosmic Ghost Rider, who's, again, one of those kind of quirky new characters that everyone seems to like a lot and the creators seem to be having like an absolute ball with. So, what was it like to getting your hands on him? Yeah, that's a weird one because that is a character that I would never have picked me for. Like, I, I would have never 
come up with that. Like that is a that is Donny Cates through and through. That that is how Donny's mind works, and I love him for it. But that is not how my mind works. So getting into it was the challenge. But Scott he- Scott Hepburn, the artist, is an absolute genius. And when I saw what he was going to do, I realized it just needed to be big crazy set pieces and big crazy ideas and a you know like a, a monstrous new villain that's as scary as cosmic ghost Rider is powerful and weird and so we kind of started there which is not usually where i start but we started with the big what's scott gonna draw how are we gonna blow people's eyeballs out of their skulls and then i brought cammy in so that it could be a dennis hopeless comic because <laughs> uh, i love cammy and I love that character interaction. And the, the first time I wrote Cammy talking to Frank, I realized, oh, this is easy. <laughs> I just tell Scott to draw crazy, and then I have these two argue, and it'll be it'll be great. Um, the hardest thing about that book is I wanted more. It, I I wish I could have asked for more issues once it was going because I could have written it forever. Like at the end of it, I was sad that we only had the number of pages left we did. Mm. And that's another thing that we were talking about doing more right off the bat at the end of it and then COVID happened as it was like before it even came out which pushed everything months and months and now like that that, I think it cannot be overstated how big of a cluster it was when Pencils Down happened because unless you were on a project that had been like plotted out for a really long time that tied into big stuff at Marvel stopping for several months just like completely derails everything mm-hmm. you know artists have to go find other things so that the teams fall apart and offices you know like certain editors got furloughed for a while and so they had to pick up slack and so it was it was a lot like i assume it is when a studio head gets changed over like you've got a project set up at sony and it's going to happen and then the person the champion it is no longer the head of sony mm. uh except it was Instead of it being uh, someone's decision, it was just this awful thing happened, shook everything up. So, yeah, that this is my only regret with Cosmic Ghost Rider is that we didn't get to do our, our bigger plans sooner. Now, I I've, I think I've, I've read stuff up that you have said in the past about this, and so I don't know if we want to necessarily retread old ground, but um, obviously in the kind of the last four years, you also kind of professionally started going by your actual last name. What kind of prompted that kind of shift as well? Oh, just mainly it was my divorce. I had created this silly pseudonym when I was in my early 20s, and then I went through this, you know, had kids and went through a really crazy time and then got divorced, and in the middle of that was like, do I, do I want to be Dennis Hopeless for the rest of my life? Like, is this, a, is this an opportunity to, to use my real name? And what I have found is all it really did was confuse the marketplace. <laughs> like, my fans understand what the hell was happening, and... Uh, on my Marvel work, it always said both for a while, and, I, and on Exo Manowar, it always said both. But on Sea of Stars, when that launched, we put my real name on the cover, and there are a lot. There are several reviews that think I'm the artist because it's a name they've never heard of that is listed right after Jason Aaron. Oh, uh, and so that was a learning experience. Um, that yeah, if you create a brand, just use the brand. So I I answer to both now, but I've stopped trying to be cute and. <laughs> I'm just going by Dennis Hopeless and resigning myself to be the brand that I built um, going forward. I mean, I guess, I mean, that that does happen in the industry. I mean, Chip Zdarsky is, you know, that's that's the name he'll always be now. 
Yeah. And it's, again, you're in a, like, going through a divorce is like the death of a family member and your house getting flooded all at the same time. Like, it's just, <laughs> when you're past it, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. And when other people go through it, it doesn't. But it messes with your head a lot. And I just, I had this notion that I could, like, rebrand myself and be a different person. And I'm not. It's, I'm still Dennis Hopeless. My writing still reads like Dennis Hopeless, and that's what people are going to look for. So I'm okay with it. Now, right now, I mean, obviously, you, you have Sea of Stars. What else are you kind of working on at the moment as we wrap up today? Well, what I did during the um, the COVID break, since all, all of my projects stopped except for Sea of Stars, and we were on hiatus while Steven moved. So I didn't have anything to do for a long time <laughs> and uh, was a little bit worried, like, what's the industry going to look like on the other end of this? Because, you know, all the weird DC stuff happened and everything was happening. So what I did was contacted every one of my former collaborators who had mentioned wanting to do creator-owned stuff, pulled old creator-owned ideas out of folders and, and kind of looked at them with fresh eyes and really figured out, like, what do I want to do that's not just work for hire? Because my career, unlike most people's, I had a very short creator-owned period and then dove straight into Marvel, and I'm not very fast, so they kept me really busy. So I have five projects in development that were either created during COVID or revived during COVID at different publishers. Um, so none of which can be announced, but several have uh, contracts pending and are destroying. So next year is going to be really big for me, creative, creator own uh, on that side of things. And then I was already writing Exo, Exo Man of War number one launched the last day there were comics before Diamond shut down. So my first issue came out in March. The second issue came out last month. Wow. Um, so that's still going on, uh, and I'm actively working on that. That's um, selling really well, and, and people are excited about that. And then, yeah, Sea of Stars is going, and I, I, I'm i talking to people about other work for higher stuff, but I, I kind of filled my plate so much with with really exciting creator-owned stuff that I hadn't done in a long time. So I think the next year, if not the next two, are going to be mostly me working on personal stuff. And then um, we'll see what happens after that. I don't know. It's, it's really fun to be writing some comics that don't have to have people in spandex punching each other for 10 pages of every issue. <laughs> like As much as I love the Marvel comics, um, scratching different different issues is, is really fun. And because I've got EXO, I have, I have one superhero book, so... It's true. Yeah, I think going forward, I'm gonna try to, to do some more personal stuff. Do you do you have one kind of? I mean, if you if you you know went and did all the creator own and never kind of went back to the you know the big two, would there be kind of one bucket list? Well, just one bucket list character kind of left at Marvel that you'd be like, oh man, that that's the one I just didn't get a chance to do yet. God, probably I got to write so so many fun characters because I did you know I did there were eighteen characters in. Avengers Arena, and <laughs> I was constantly putting in, you know, crazy villains and everything, and then, like, my little one-offs were always full of stuff, like, I got to do Thor and Jean Grey, I got to do lots of X-characters in Jean Grey, I got to write, um, uh, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, and, um, I guess Daredevil and Doctor Strange, which have been two of my buckle of characters in my Doctor Strange run, uh, 
run, my Doctor Strange arc that I wrote, uh, all with Jessica Drew and Ben Urich because we were like it was supposed to be like a transition thing. And so there's probably someone I'm not thinking of, but I've been really, really lucky with that. Like I've written all the main X-Men characters. I've written Thor. I've written, I guess, Iron Man, I guess is maybe the answer. I've probably written Tony Stark in the background of something, but Mm. I've never really leaned into Iron Man. So it might be Iron Man. Um, And I would have said Spider-Man forever, but then I did like a year on camera (laughs) for Spider-Man. No, I mean, my answer in big two comics in general is Guy Gardner. Guy Gardner was my favorite superhero for all of my childhood and adolescence. <laughs> and while that's a ridiculous answer to that question, um, <laughs> it's a unique well, it's one. Right. I like that. No, that's it's you know it's not not your stereotypical answer. Well, I really love Justice League International, and Guy was hmm. to me as a child a funny one. I mean, he's obviously like the ridiculous one <laughs> from an adult's perspective. But no, I love Guy Gardner. So, last question before we let you go. Back when cons were still a thing, um, I guess at the most recent con you were at, what did you find was the, the most common thing that was pushed across the table for you to sign? It's usually Spider-Woman are the people... It's not necessarily the thing I sign the most, but it would be up there. It, it would be one or two. But it is the thing that people want to stand and talk about the most. Um, the one that surprises me is Cable and X-Force because writing Cable and X-Force I felt like I had no idea what the hell I was doing and um, the people that love that book love it to death and will love it forever um, so those those happen a lot and then uh, thanks to um, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men <laughs> X-Men season one is at every single con and will be forever like that's people's favorite young X-Men story. Um, a lot of people, it's not everybody's, but yeah, so I sign a lot of those, which is crazy because that's a $25 hardcover that I can't believe anybody ever bought. <laughs> Guess you'd be surprised, right? But with that, I mean, it's great. I mean, it's Jamie, it's Jamie McKelvey art back when anybody uh, could work with Jamie other than himself and Kieran and mm-hmm. uh, Matt Wilson colors. Like that was our, the art team was rock stars that hadn't blown up yet. And it's, it was a really fun project with it that I love, but it's short for 25 pages. Like the, those, um, it was when Marvel was first dabbling in original graphic novels and they had those beautiful hardcovers, but they're short. They're like a hundred pages. Um, they have re-released it since in a soft cover that's cheap, but they changed the name. I don't even remember what it's called. It's like X-Men origins. Uncanny origins, I think. So you can get it. Yeah. You can get it for cheaper now, but for a long time it was a very expensive hundred page book. It's interesting that you mentioned that you know some of those books are ones that you know people would want to talk to you about, and I guess it's kind of a lot of those books that you were writing were maybe not the you know the the flagship books, but they were the ones with the kind of the, the niche characters or one of the people who really were going to like it were going to going to love it because those characters had to have a place somewhere. Like Spider Woman didn't really have anywhere else to go. If you wanted Spider Woman, you had to be reading that book and. That that's where you had to go for her, and it doesn't surprise me that you know yeah. people would want to you know chat about that stuff because you know that's that's special to them because the, the characters and focuses that maybe weren't always there. Yeah, the nice thing about those those side characters, I mean, they're not side characters, but the characters that aren't also in fifteen other things, 
is you really do get to put a stamp on them. They get to be yours for a period of time because they're not showing up that same month in 15 other things. Um, and yeah, I've been really lucky in the, in that when I did that, I was given track to run on. You know, like I, they didn't just get canceled five issues in. I'm really, really lucky. I mean, I got to do 18 issues of Avengers Arena out of the gate. Like that, if that thing had failed, I would have gotten five issues and we wouldn't even found out who won. Uh, <laughs> but no, I got a sequel series. The only thing I've ever done that was like sold so poorly we didn't get to get all the way to the end was Avengers Undercover. Mm. Which shocking! Take Avengers Arena and remove the hook. Of course, that's not going to sell as well. Um, but we still got twelve issues of it, and I, or no, maybe it was ten. I can't remember. Um, but I think that's a decent run. I got to tell that story. I had to cut a little bit out of the middle, but got to play with those characters for twenty-eight issues. Like that's remarkable. And in today's market, you kind of write for that first trade and then hope you get to do a second one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got really lucky to be able to play around in weird corners for, for extended runs on stuff for a while. And, and yeah, now um, now I get to play around in my own corners and my own things. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to uh, nope. see, see what comes out next year, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on at some point to kind of go through. I mean, it sounds like you're going to have a lot of projects, so it's going to be interesting to kind of be able to go through them with you. Yes, I'm going to be obnoxious next year, so please do have me on. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dennis, thank you again so much for spending your time uh, today. And again, I look forward to hopefully chatting with you next year. Yep, thanks for having me.